of everybody who went the distance, we certainly had the least purchasing power. Mm -hmm. Our goal was to make sure that JD had enough money uh, by the time early voting started that he could deliver one message really clearly. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what he did. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we wanted to put him in a position once early voting started to be competitive for first place so that he could sort of seal the deal himself. Mm -hmm. um, and quite evidently he did. Um, sealing deal meant in part being a credible contender for the Trump endorsement, which we got. Um, and, you know, JD being a contender for first was, I think, a really big part of that. Mm -hmm. um, also, he's uniquely talented as a candidate. We built an enormous data um, and targeting engine and then made that the, the universes that we built out of that targeting available in digital repositories for the campaign to buy their digital ads against. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, obviously, there's the blog. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and this week it's just me. Um, uh, the, the episode was going to be too high-octane nerdery, so uh, Nick decided to get some work done instead. Um, uh, but we've, we, we're firing off cylinders here at American Moment, so uh, every moment counts. But we're excited to have you guys back for another episode today. We got to dive in on one of my pet obsessions today, which is uh, the world of campaigns and elections campaign finance, specifically the way that our, you know, quote unquote, sacred democracy is structured and the intersection between the parties and the electorate and money in politics and everything. Um, it's a it's a crash course in how our campaign finance system works. And uh, with a guest who I look up to quite a bit, we add on today, Luke Thompson, um, who is primarily a Republican political consultant, though he has a PhD in, I believe, history uh, from Yale, uh, Kansas State alum, uh, very smart guy. And he was also most recently one of the people running the protect Ohio Values Super PAC, which was the primary super PAC advocating for uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio. And so uh, we thought that it'd be interesting as a purely journalistic exercise to uh, have Mr. Thompson on to talk about how exactly they pulled that off. So a lot of very interesting inside baseball that you can uh, learn about on today's episode. As always, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. So uh, this episode shouldn't be seen as an endorsement of JD's candidacy or a disendorsement of anyone else's, but uh, purely informational to help you guys uh, understand how the sausage is made in campaigns and elections. Um, Luke is a fantastic guy, very interesting Twitter follow. You can follow him at LT Thompson on Twitter um, and, uh, and has occasionally uh, written uh, for publications like National Review and elsewhere. Um, if you're interested in constitutional history, um, he has a fantastic podcast series he did with Jay Cost uh, called Constitutionally Speaking that frankly is as good as a History 101 course that you can get about the early American Republic. Um, highly recommend listening to that. But without further ado, we'll go now to talk all things campaign finance and how to win a Senate race in Ohio uh, with Luke Thompson. Luke, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, people come to this podcast from very eclectic backgrounds. Uh, yours is more eclectic than most. Uh, tell us how you ended up here uh, being a uh, dirty, filthy campaign uh, staffer. Um, what went wrong? What what wrong turns did you take? Please please tell us the tale. I was standing outside the monocle. A van pulled up. <laughs> Several men grabbed me. A hood was put over my head. Um, I don't actually know where I am right now. Yeah. <laughs> Help me. No. Um, I... Uh, 
So I, I grew up in, in a college town in Kansas and went to college in said college town and uh, really, really liked being in college. Um, I had not liked being in high school because I was bored, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I found the university life very congenial and um, in my naivete decided to go to graduate school, mm. thinking, that, um, uh, thinking that graduate school would be an extension of sort of the life of the mind as I was able to understand it in undergraduate. Uh, you know, college agreed with me as much as I liked it. And so, uh, yeah, I wound up, um, I, I worked pretty hard and wound up going to Yale, um, straight out of undergrad, uh, to get a Thanks for saying it instead of doing the whole, yeah, no, no, we're not, yeah, we won't beat around it. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I'm from that classic university of Kansas to Yale pipeline. So well, true. well yeah. established. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, I, I showed up and realized very quickly that, you know, I had chosen to go to grad school instead of going to work for a bank. And uh, I realized pretty quickly that it was its own kind of rat race. Mm -hmm. And that rather than simply being um, elevated versions of the faculty at my undergrad who generally liked each other, were not majority divorced, uh, you know, seemed to have work-life balance and, and enjoy their professions, um, a lot of what I found at Yale was people grinding away and being miserable. And... Um, Sort of bootlessly so, right? Not not able to articulate a, a a conviction for why, and thought about quitting. And then the global financial crisis happened, and decided that hiding out in academia for another few years was probably a good idea. Um, found I really did enjoy it. I mean, those were it was an incredible experience, and I have no regrets about doing it. Uh, but knowing that I didn't want to be an academic, when the time came to leave, I sort of cast about for other things to do after graduation, and uh, stumbled into the comparatively stable and respectable occupation of Republican political consultant. Mm. <laughs> you know, I wanted more social validation. That's right. really what it was. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, the heartless academic to Roger Stone pipeline, really. <laughs> Correct. Yes, that's it. I have a Nixon tattoo. They give yeah. it to you during orientation. Oh, that's actually. Very, very good. Where? Uh, we can't talk about that. No. It's a family-friendly podcast. That's right. Um, so let's walk through that, that exact transition because um, it's a world that's quite rarefied and at least partially because uh, the media spent the last five years breathlessly pretending like the world of Republican political consulting is a threat to democracy uh, uh, more broadly. Yeah. Um, what were some of the early campaigns you were involved in? What was the value that you brought to these operations? Uh, what, 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 the, what did they need an academic for? Yeah, I mean, math is the short answer. Um, so I'd always done campaign things, um, done campaign work, uh, had not done it as a full-time job or a primary um, income. I got really lucky. I came out of graduate school shortly after the 2012 election, uh, and the Republican Party at the time was sort of um, bereft for people who could do math. Mm -hmm. um, and I had had a pretty good run of quantitative training in graduate school since I had realized early on I probably wanted to do something other than being a, a political philosophy professor. I had you know, done the stat sequence at Yale in order to be competent mm -hmm. um, at that as sort of a hedge. I'd done research assistant work on field experiments and, and the like. And as a result, um, you know, had a basic set of skills that, that had applicability. Um, I showed up to the Senate committee, which had just gone through a total staffing overhaul and said, look, would any of this expertise, both on the field experiment side and also on the math side, be useful to you? Um, I'm just going to be around DC for a few months. I'd actually gotten offered a job by Yale to come back and teach for a year, which I took right before the NRSC then said, yes, why don't you also then come work for us? 
full time. Um, so for a year, I was going back and forth between New Haven and, and DC, um, teaching up there and then uh, putting together a sort of modeling engine and, and a, a data backend for the Senate committee. Uh, we had a very good cycle, um, won a bunch of seats. I learned a this whole was lot. 2014? 2014, yeah. I learned a whole lot and uh, then decamped for Los Angeles shortly thereafter to go work for Jeb Bush's super PAC, Right to Rise, mm -hmm. uh, where we didn't win a lot, um, <laughs> uh, but I did learn a whole lot and uh, learned also that I didn't want to live in Los Angeles for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, so I moved to New York, have uh, started a firm or uh, joined a firm in New York, stayed with them for a couple years and then went out on my own. And about a year ago, I moved to Baltimore. So yeah, that's kind of it. Man, you just keep on picking duds of cities. Huh? No, Baltimore's great. <laughs> New York's great too, and Los Angeles is great in its way. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it, I I'm glad I didn't stay, uh, but it's it's a nice it's a nice place. California is amazing. It's it's just sort of going through some troubles. One of the elements of this podcast that I I really want to use the opportunity for is is. You know, th there's all these terms that are thrown around often in Republican politics, um, and people just don't know what they are, or they sure. have to learn the hard way. The NRSC, National Republican Senatorial Committee, what does it do? Uh, it elects Republican senators. Um, it's a very, very simple mission. Mm -hmm. uh, the Republican Senate Committee is what's called a um, – it's, it's a federal committee, a hard-dollar committee. Hard-dollar committees are committees that can give contributions directly to – uh, candidates. Mm -hmm. uh, that means that it discloses all of its donors, it discloses all of its spending, and it has limits in terms of how much it can take from individuals. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the SC, as opposed to the CC, the National Republican Congressional Committee, um, is devoted solely to senators, uh, mm -hmm. which means that it has a different set of clients every single cycle because mm -hmm. the Senate turns over. Um, the CC is a little different. There's more continuity because you have a certain set of battleground districts, at least within a, you know, a decennial census period. Mm -hmm. Um, although redistricting is becoming an ongoing perpetual process now, uh, it's never going to end. It's never going to end. Yes, <laughs> we'll just be litigating. We'll be litigating Ohio and North Carolina till the cows come home. Yeah. Um, Perhaps one day North Carolina will have its congressional districts. That maybe sometime between the rapture and the end times. <laughs> we'll, we'll just go back to like uh, the the late 18th century where we, you know, Vermont had like six members of Congress that they just elected at large. Why not? <laughs> you know, the Senate committee. Defends incumbents because that's although I think not technically part of its charter, it's it's part of its its ethos, if you will. And then um, once there's a primary that's over, it it attempts to get general election candidates elected. Mm -hmm. um, it has constrained resources, so you know it's parceling those out based on which districts are most likely to be won. Mm -hmm. So it's playing in battlegrounds pretty much exclusively, right? So yeah. like, I don't know that we'll see the NRSC weighing in in Hawaii if there is a Hawaii Senate race this year. I, mm -hmm. don't, I don't know that there is, but mm -hmm. um, in that respect, it's different from in the older pre-McCain-Feingold party building days when the Senate committee could take what's called so what was called then soft money, not to be confused with soft dollars because all of this is confusing and lexically you know, impenetrable. Um, at that time, the federal committees, again, the SC, the CC, and the Republican National Committee, they were big entities for building parties in all of the states. They mm -hmm. could take unlimited corporate money in, and they could distribute it in unlimited amounts for specific purposes. Mm -hmm. The Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act in 2002, colloquially called McCain-Feingold, kills that because it bans soft money mm -hmm. and turns the the senate committee the house committee and the rnc into essentially glorified 
leadership packs mm-hmm. for whoever the leader of each chamber is. So concretely, it changes from being able to take unlimited funding in to you can only do that max out. What is it? It changes every cycle. To yeah, cycle. It's, it's like 30,000, something like that, yeah. which is still a huge amount of money. But compared to you know the old days when the Fortune 500 would just cut the Democratic and Republican committees each large checks, mm-hmm. it's just the numbers mm-hmm. are very, very different. And then in terms of output, what has changed in the kind of activity that they're able to do? Sure. So uh, the biggest change is that they don't, you know, they don't retain staff Mm -hmm. in the way that they used to. Um, You know, you have regional political directors who serve as um, as point people for regions. But, you know, in the in the bygone glory days, you used to have, you know, the the Senate committee or the House committee could even hire a person to work on the different campaigns functionally as volunteers Mm -hmm. being paid through either directly from the committee or via the state party. Mm hmm. Um, it's, but, it's, so it's, what it's done is it's, it's made much more anemic, mm-hmm. um, and, and more advertising focused, mm-hmm. the business of politics, as opposed to more organizing focused, if that makes sense. But that's the, the practical outlay of the fact that there's less resources available to them. What did McCain Feingold do to limit what they are allowed to do at all? Oh, um, well, so, uh, n- not a lot, um, not a lot per se. It, th- there were, there were parts of McCain-Feingold that have since been struck down. Mm-hmm. So one thing that McCain-Feingold did was they imposed coordinating caps. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, the coordinating cap is the Senate committee can only give X dollars to each of the to each campaign, mm-hmm. um, it, and and that's true of individuals too. Individuals can only give you know Y dollars to mm-hmm. each campaign. It used to be that McCain-Feingold put an overall cap on how much an individual could give, mm-hmm. so that you know every Republican senator was competing with every other Republican senator for mm-hmm. some share of the pie, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, those obviously unconstitutional rules got knocked down, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of what they can actually do, not that much changed with McCain-Feingold mm-hmm. as, as in terms of practice, mm-hmm. just in terms of incentives. Are you a congressional office with interns this summer or an intern yourself looking to learn more about the America First agenda? Then you need to participate in AM Fridays, a brand new program by American Moment designed to teach young staff in D.C. the basics of what it means to be America First. Over the course of the summer, for 10 weeks, American Moment has rented out the top floor of the Monocle Restaurant in Washington, D.C., and will be bringing in speakers from across the conservative movement to talk about issues from immigration to trade to foreign policy to innovation to how to support the family and much more. If you'd like your interns to participate in this program, email info at AmericanMoment.org with the subject line AM Fridays, and we'll be sure to add them to the list. So let's zoom out. We, we've gone specific here on the NRSC, but... You know, you you have uh, not only deep knowledge of the existing way that elections and elections financing works in the United States, mm-hmm. but also deep criticisms of it. So let's start with the sure. former. Sure. Lay of the land, hard dollars, soft dollars, right. what kind of committees? Give us a taxonomy. Sure. So um, American politics takes place within the landscape of American nonprofit entities, corporations, mm-hmm. um, which are almost all governed under the IRS code. Um, some of which are also governed by the Federal Elections Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, on one end, you have what we call 501c3s. C3s, this is your quintessential nonprofit. It's the American Heart Association. It's a university. It's, um, you know, churches have their own subcategorization, but these are explicitly- it's American moment. Sure, yes. Yeah. Are you guys are C3? Yes. Okay, yeah. So a C3 cannot engage in partisan activity. It can't touch elections. It doesn't disclose its donors. And- um, it uh, it 
uh, the donations are tax deductible. That's the final component. So you have you have anonymity and you have deductibility. And in exchange for those things, you're excluded from campaign politics. Yep. So that's one end of the kind of underlying ontology of, of nonprofit law. On the other far end of it, you have campaigns. So these would be campaign committees, right? Um, uh, Sarab Sharma for Congress would be a- God forbid. A, God forbid, <laughs> yes, would be a, would be a campaign committee. Yeah. That campaign committee, an individual can give you up to $2,900 per election. Um, and so that would be 2,900 for a primary, 2,900 for um, a general spouse can give another 29, et cetera. Um, they disclose all their donors. They disclose all of their expenditures. Um, they can receive a certain amount of money from the federal committees, um, and they can work in tandem with the federal committees up to a point, as well as in tandem with state parties up to a point. Um, what's important is all of that money is in theory directed by the candidate directly. Um, typically, of course, that's you know delegated to a general consultant or a campaign manager or a, or a treasurer, depending on which campaign it is, typically a consultant. But the candidate is the principal of that entity. Um, whereas, you know, on the other end, it's typically a board of directors that has to do disclosure to the IRS. Campaigns are governed by the Federal Elections Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, 501c3s are governed by the IRS. In between, you have two sort of chimerical entities. Uh, the first of these is a 501c4. They are also nonprofits. They don't disclose their donors. They are not tax deductible, but the majority of their moment of their um, their income has to be spent on um, on non political activity. It can be social welfare. Now, social welfare can include things like. Uh, issues, right? I'm going to make a TV ad talking about how, you know, the shape of Pellegrino bottles is a matter of major national concern and people should call their congressmen and mm-hmm. complain about the shape of Pellegrino bottles. That's that's corrupting the children. It, truly, something They're, like the that. Curvaceous green bottles. My God. Simply too much. Now that I, <laughs> it's, it's upsetting now that I look we, at we it. We need more blood. It's drawing paper. me in, yes. <laughs> um, no, the... Um, you know the 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 social welfare organizations. Again, you lose deductibility. You keep anonymity. Mm-hmm. Um, these organizations are increasingly popular uh, because there's a lot that you can do with um, social welfare dollars other than uh, making you know campaign ads, right? So typically, you take a share less than half of of every dollar that goes in. You transfer that over into a super PAC. We'll get to that in just a second. With the remainder, you can do issue ads, you can do generic get out the vote. Um, and especially if you have concerns about, you, you can do grassroots lobbying depending on the state, right, which is helping to get activists to call on an issue. Um, so there's there's real use cases there. Mm. Um, and there are donors who are concerned, uh, you know, as we're as recording today, you know, we had a, a lunatic show up outside of a Supreme Court justice's house with weapons. Mm-hmm. People are concerned about the state of of American democracy and the state of of whether or not they're going to be threatened, intimidated, physically attacked for participating, mm-hmm. C4s can be really useful for those folks. Mm-hmm. They are protected by, along with C3s, they're protected um, by a body of case law sort of originally coming out of the Deep South during the Civil Rights Movement um, that the NAACP pushed for to protect donors and keep them anonymous mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Donors to the NAACP in the Deep South during the, the Civil Rights era were Routinely subject to physical threats and all the NAACP violence. was a five hundred one c four. I don't know what uh, what form it took back then. Mm-hmm. This law has changed mm-hmm. um, since that that case law. But the the principle that you don't have to assign your name to speech that yeah. you can have anonymous speech that that predates 
the major campaign finance litigation that begins in the, mm -hmm. the late 60s and early 70s. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, Kamala Harris is the great enemy of that case law. She wants to destroy NAACP. That's the, the case, not the entity. I'm sure she's fine with the entity. Um, but she disagrees with the principle that, that you don't have to associate your name to your speech. The mm -hmm. speech is autonomous. It exists in its own right. Um, next to that, you have the notorious super PAC. Mm. Um, a super PAC is organized under Section 527 of the tax code, so it'll often be referred to as 527s. Super PACs disclose their donors, they disclose their spending. Um, they have no restrictions in terms of what share of their budget they can spend on explicit campaign advocacy. So, you know, however much they can they can put into ads, they'll do it. Um, Oftentimes, an affiliated C4 and Super PAC, the C4 will contribute its political share over to the Super PAC and then engage in no advertising mm -hmm. for purposes of campaigns, what we call independent expenditures. Your Super PACs um, get a lot of the attention, but actually they're a shrinking part of, of the ecosystem, especially on the left. Um, the ability to move anonymous dollars around uh, through C3s and C4s and then have the money just sort of surface in a super PAC at the 11th hour to buy ads is is kind of the the growing norm. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of waste implied in that. So mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as an operative, I prefer if I'm running a C4 and a super PAC to have as many dollars as possible in the super PAC because I can do the most with them. Mm -hmm. I have the maximum flexibility. But um, again, donors are are subject to political and uh, intimidation and physical threats and things like that. We'll, mm -hmm. we'll often go into C fours. So neither a five twenty seven nor a C four can coordinate strategically with a campaign or a or a hard dollar committee. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, what that means is you cannot communicate about messaging, strategy, spending, et cetera. There is information that you can share. Mm -hmm. You can get aligned on schedules. You can deconflict on vendors. You can share lists and data as long as they're of equivalent value. Mm -hmm. You're just swapping like two companies exchanging assets mm -hmm. um, because you're independent groups. They, they are genuinely independent, but you cannot share staff. Mm -hmm. uh, you can have common vendors provided those vendors don't have a strategic role. Mm -hmm. Right, so we can have the same telephone company, for instance, or something like that. You can have other shared services. But how are you allowed to communicate? Um, you have to communicate in public, mm -hmm. or you have to communicate through fairly defined channels. Um, I am not a risk taker when it comes to campaign. I, I I will push campaign finance law in terms of messaging, but I color inside the lines. Mm -hmm. And so, typically, if I wanted, say, to communicate with a campaign that I was spending in the race. I do almost all of my communication by email mm. um, so that it's written down and you copy counsel on it and you make sure you have attorneys on everything. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's very difficult to – you have to really work at it to break the law and wind up going to prison with campaign finance. But it's mm -hmm. very easy to find yourself mired in even f uh, just meritless litigation mm -hmm. and to be subject to, to review. So my sort of approach to this is always go as um, – you know, be color within the lines in terms of what's what's allowed, and make sure that if you're gonna cross that that boundary, put it all in writing, so that if you are subject to review, no one's saying, "Well, what did you discuss on the phone call?" Yeah. Well, nothing. There was no phone call. It's all in writing. You can read it. Yeah. Okay. So we have the empirical reality of how this world works. Now let's uh, let's get normative. Sure. <laughs> is uh, is Citizens United the great? Casus belli of corruption of the American <laughs> Republic, as I hear so often from so many people. No, um, 
So Citizens United being the Supreme Court case that created the legal structure where super PACs could exist. Well, they could exist anyway. Um, and and we've had outside spending groups always, right? And independent expenditures were acknowledged as legal dating back to the Buckley v. Vallejo case. The exact status of them was, was indeterminate. Um, and they weren't that useful or necessary when you could give lots of money to either the party committees or to campaigns, mm-hmm. right? They filled a gap only when um, – only once McCain-Feingold began to strangle the actual party apparatus, the formal party apparatus. Um, political money like life in Jurassic Park finds a way. Mm. And so you you know, you know, have to – systems designed to close it out actually encourage corruption. This mm-hmm. is true of almost every Western and Central European um, country that has tried to either do public financing of elections or to exclude money from elections. You wind up with a with an underbelly, an informal system of funding that's, mm-hmm. that's much shadier, much more likely to have actual – malign foreign influence show up in the form of lots of cash. Not that we haven't had that in the U.S. Um, before. I mean, the Clintons, for instance, took a whole bunch of money from the Chinese through the DNC. Mm-hmm. And like, that was just, they just did that. Um, but- and To uh, clarify, you are not planning on committing suicide anytime soon. No, 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 no. no, no. I, won't, I won't be loitering in a park or anything like that. Um, but the, uh, you know, part of what the impetus for McCain-Feingold was actually Chinagate. Um, when the DNC took a bunch of Chinese money mm-hmm. um, during the Clinton administration. Al Gore was sort of the point man on that, but that's ancient history at this point. Um, the So any good system of financing uh, has to balance interests. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest distortions we have right now in American campaign finance is that it is seen understandably and naively but understandably as um, evidence in corruption, if you, again, hypothetically, you're the candidate, let's imagine I'm fabulously wealthy and, and you're the candidate. If I cut you a check for a lot of money- Two several, fictions. <laughs> yeah, so several million dollars, yeah. right? Um, you know, that would be illegal right now. Mm-hmm. And it's illegal, and the Supreme Court has actually sustained that. They've sustained contribution limits because of the appearance of corruption. But let's say instead of cutting you a check, I just decide I'm fabulously wealthy. I want to run for office. I'm going to cut myself a check. Mm-hmm. That's totally fine because my money is an extension of my speech. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have a transitive property, which mm-hmm. means that when I, if I try to donate to you over the limit, that violates a sense of fairness and it creates the appearance of corruption. Mm-hmm. As a result, self-funding of elections has become the norm. Mm-hmm. And this is a problem. Eight-figure net worth boomers. Yeah, it's a really it's a it's a problem. Um, and you know, don't 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 cut out the eight figure uh, net worth Gen Xers yet. <laughs> but um, but yeah, essentially, it's getting to the point where it's so much easier to run for office as a very wealthy person than as a even as a long term state legislator, highly accomplished um, public servant. Uh, that that's who's running for large offices statewide and up. Um, and that's that's concerning to me. Um, what I would prefer is that. Um, allow the agonistic political system to do its job, which is to say, you, if I say, Sarab, I'm going to cut you a check for, you know, $5 million, you can say, why don't we make it 500000 and another 500000 a month, et cetera, because I want to avoid the political cost of just taking $5 million from you because it would look bad. Or you might say, great, thrilled to have it put it in the campaign coffers. Now, I think the public has an interest in knowing if I'm giving you that money. So I think disclosure laws rightly would cover that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the system we have now essentially rewards the fabulously wealthy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I specialize in outside groups, the C4s and super PACs that we talked about. But they are not as they, they are not as accountable. They're not as transparent. It is difficult for voters to parse the, mm-hmm. you know, 
um, the landscape of, of entities that we just outlined. So it encourages deceit, um, and I think it's it's bad. Mm-hmm. In a perfect world, you would have very few outside groups. Mm-hmm. Um, they could accept unlimited money, and may- maybe you would even get rid of super PACs. You would just have C4s, so they would yeah. have anonymous donors, right? Um, but they would have to spend most of their their budgets on on social welfare but campaigns could take unlimited money mm-hmm. as long as it was disclosed expeditiously so you think that the trade-off that would make the most sense is is removing caps on on the amount of dollars but also removing the protection of anonymity um for purposes of donating to campaigns mm-hmm. yes not not in general i think you want to keep c4s you want to keep c3s mm-hmm. i think it's i think naacp is important mm-hmm. and that's a value that's worthy you know I, speech and ideas stand on their own they're not tied to an individual mm-hmm. person they're, you know there's not an origin essentialism for an idea sure. in in the initiator of it right mm-hmm. um but yeah i think for purposes of campaigns i would have pretty stringent disclosure laws but no limits on money going in so from I, a, I, I would also extend that to, by the way, I think candidates should take mo- be allowed to take money from corporations mm-hmm. or unions or things like that. Right now, they're not. They can only take it from individual people or designated hard dollar entities like the national committees or what are called leadership packs that mm-hmm. individual office holders have. Yeah. Um, public financing. You know, this, this is something that people tend to talk a lot about in terms of uh, the idea that, you know, there should be a, a limited pool of money that everyone has access to um, and that, you know, the best ideas will, will win out. Let's yeah, that's it's just it's just wrong. I mean, it doesn't play out that way. That's splicing the frog DNA into the into the dinosaurs. They're mm-hmm. going to start mating. Um, it's just, <laughs> you know, there are there are countries where they have public financing. And as I said, in every single one of their there's a there's a, a black market of public or a political financing mm-hmm. operative, you know. There are countries, developed first world countries, where the political mm-hmm. parties are secret owners of hotels and then direct the states that they control to rent those hotels out for purposes of, um, you know, state functions, mm-hmm. right? On the taxpayer dime, then they channel that money back into the the, the party coffers. Anyone who goes below the surface level and reads mm-hmm. about how these systems, these systems mm-hmm. actually work will discover that, oh no, it's just a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and I get it. It seems appealing, right? And if you talk to people who work on foreign campaigns, they'll often say, you Americans, you spend all day fundraising. It's crazy. You know, I don't spend any time fundraising. And it's like, yeah, you don't, but somebody does. And yeah. the fact that you don't know who he is says something. Yeah. So we're both on the right of center. Sure. What's the... M- so in, in, you know, if this was 20 years ago, I think I would have basically been on the same page as you. But to the extent that that amount of dollars and anonymity have to be balanced against each other in this era of to use a very trite term cancel culture mm-hmm. of, of 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 the mob persecution of people who have political beliefs that would be mainstream to people 60 years ago and are mainstream to 60 percent of the country but not popular in elite life mm-hmm. isn't there a case just from an utterly mercenary perspective that we protect our guys from the mob well, look, like I said, I think you keep the the C three C four system out there, mm-hmm. right? I I wouldn't want to change that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, as it stands, giving money to politicians means disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, when it comes to dollars going directly to politicians mm-hmm. or to party entities, the public interest in disclosure outweighs a personal concern mm-hmm. about anonymity. Because the thing is, if you give over two hundred dollars anyway, you're going to be disclosed. Right. So the the, the threshold is so low for disclosure. Mm-hmm. You know, let political concerns balance whether it's twenty nine hundred, twenty nine thousand, two point nine million, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
but I, I trust the political system to take care of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, like we saw that with one of those Castro brothers after a, after um, the El Paso shooting, putting mm -hmm. out the names of you know, random small business owners who mm -hmm. I think donated to Ted Cruz or something, or Donald Trump. I think I it mean, was Trump. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just maniacal, mm -hmm. bizarre stuff, mm -hmm. essentially threatening to mob people. There was a normative backlash to or that. Proposition 8 in California back in the day, Brendan Ike getting- Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean- you know, state level thing. Every state has its own system. Um, California is essentially designed to be punitive, onerous, and advantage um, incumbent Democrats. Many it's such a, cases. Many <laughs> such cases. It's a deeply broken system. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, as a general rule, I would say the more you can bring money into the campaign mm -hmm. system, uh, the less you're dealing with money free floating on the outside. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I say this as someone who specializes in the free floating money yeah. on the outside. So uh, the balancing of anonymity and uh, the amount of dollars is, is one uh, facet of this system. The other facet of the system is, uh, you know, who gets the money. And so mm -hmm. we've laid out, you know, these types of committees, we've laid out campaigns, but there's also parties. And, um, right. you know, one of your uh, uh, riffs and rants is that um, uh, parties should, should have more to say in this process. What's the argument for that? What are, what are the legitimate reasons why people didn't want parties to sure. have as much influence? Walk us through the morality Yeah, let me, let, me, let me start with the second and then I'll go back to it and I'll, I'll, I'll refute it. So Americans have a pretty deep and abiding anti-party attitude. It's mm -hmm. been around from the beginning. A big part of that is because there's this funny time incongruity where essentially from the revolution through the constitution is is like the last 15 year period where political parties don't dominate the politics of parliamentary and, and electoral systems around mm -hmm. the world. And so they were like, this can happen forever. Right. And <laughs> so we sort of got locked in amber a set of both institutions and then attitudes that don't really have, I mean, it's the biggest... It's the biggest blind spot that the framers of the constitution have is, is faction, the spirit mm -hmm. of faction. Um, you know... People understandably look at partisanship as vulgar. They see it as um, they see it as as a substitute for reasoning. Mm -hmm. And and from a normative standpoint, I appreciate that. And and there's some val validity to that. But partisanship also provides a real value. Um, it's a heuristic that helps inform voters. This is the thing that the ranked choice voting people just don't understand. Mm -hmm. Like. Um, partisan brands help voters understand who you are. Mm -hmm. uh, it creates collective accountability, which gives me an incentive if we're both, let's say in this theory, we're both members of Congress who are Republicans. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to hold you accountable to certain things because if you go and create a scandal, you're going to create a problem for me. Mm -hmm. Or let's be honest, between the two of us, it's more likely to be running the other direction. But um, the the idea is that, you know, there are very in, in our system, we can have lots and lots of of opportunities for individuals to engage in individual interest seeking that doesn't yield policy making and that doesn't get subject to popular accountability mm -hmm. because there are enough veto points that you can do a lot of really nasty stuff without the public finding out about it. Mm -hmm. You can be a really unproductive member. Now, that in the right hands can be great because you can have someone who's very committed, who's an activist, who can take care of his stuff at home in terms of electoral incentives and really hold his colleagues' feet to the fire, mm -hmm. right? But that is also true within a party system, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
you know, parties are the way we get things done. There's also just the fact that partisanship is one of the most salient and stickiest identities in the United States. The single best predictor of what party you're going to join is which party your parents were a member of. Mm -hmm. Most independents have strong partisan preferences and use the partisan cues yeah. of party registration. It has roughly the inheritability of religion, religious yeah. affiliation. And, right? and like religious affiliation, some people fall out or switch in their 20s, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. Like very few people switch parties in their 30s, 40s, 50s. There are exceptions. Those exceptions are generally when one party is captured by policy entrepreneurs that essentially attack the economic well-being of large swaths of people. But even then, it takes a long time. And that attrition process is is slow. You know, mm -hmm. Republicans only took over the registration advantage in West Virginia last year. I think we're still at a disadvantage in Kentucky. These are not blue states but mississippi didn't switch over its house of mississippi delegates until like yeah well i mean i'm talking about in the electorate yeah, mississippi yeah. doesn't have party registration yeah. in the electorate but yes precisely so you know partisanship just as a fact is there it's real you have to deal with it um oftentimes partisanship is tied to religion because immigrant groups get assimilated into the political system through parties and then you know, it is quite literally her heritable. It's mm -hmm. a it's an indicia of of ethnicity, religion, family ties, etc. Um, you know, what does that say about the prospects of democracy when you have people who are, in many ways, reasoning backwards from a from a, if not exactly rigid commitment, something pretty close to one, something they themselves are not even conscious of? That's another discussion. But um, but yeah, we are we are partisan by nature, and um, I think we have to take account of that. Yeah. Um, there's a whole nother, uh, aside we could go down, which is that you acknowledge that the framers may have had a blind spot. One of the, oh, yeah, they made lots of mistakes. That, one of the things that I, I highly recommend, um, people check out is a series you did with Jay cost constitutionally speaking, which basically taught me everything I know about American constitutional history. <laughs> College didn't teach me much of anything about it. So it's, it's excellent, but we'll put that aside for a second. Um, so partisanship is a reality. Yes. So then in the nexus of uh, interactions that campaigns and the electorate and donors and and voters have, uh, what role should parties play in 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 the 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 czarship of Luke Thompson? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so you have partisanship in the electorate. You have parties as legally instantiated entities in campaign mode. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, party caucuses in legislative bodies. You can think of those as three different expressions of the party. Mm -hmm. um, in reality, it's not that's not that's typically how they're portrayed as sort of columns or concentric mm -hmm. circles. That's really not it. Partisanship in the electorate drives everything else. Um, and so the question is, what is the proper organizational entity normatively and and sort of empirically to embody this and give it shape into policy because you know in a first past the post system you're going to have two parties mm -hmm. um you can have four parties with stable coalitions you know which technically like the democratic farmer labor party of minnesota is not i think strictly speaking the democratic but you get the point yeah um you know I, the so the parties have to become vehicles for the reconciliation of, of sometimes irreconcilable differences. That means that there's both explicit and implicit horse trading going on across constituencies on issues mm -hmm. simultaneously and also over time, right? Um, in, in my view, you know, party discipline is a good thing because 
party discipline triggers accountability when it runs contrary to the interests of its voters. There are most elected officials hate that because they don't want to be squeezed between the leadership of their con their caucus and their voters. And in the pre-McCain-Feingold days, the leadership of the caucus had money enough to say, look, I need you to be with me on this. Here I will exchange X amount of political support in the form of, you know, distributing federal federally received soft uh, money down to your political organization, right? Vote buying essentially within the caucus. Um, that's a really useful tool. But there were also people, um, you know, Jesse Helms, I think most famously, who didn't want to play the game and set up their own autonomous. I mean, he essentially with, you know, Richard Vigory and some other people invented mail fundraising, mm -hmm. what, what we call, you know, small dollar or email list fundraising now mm -hmm. um, in order to be able to say to Republican Senate leaders, no, I think I'll go my own way. Um, I think that's a helpful tool. I think having leadership giving leadership that tool is valuable because the other thing is you run up very quickly against the limits of that tool. Mm -hmm. um, what McCain-Feingold essentially did, because McCain hated listening to people and being, and, being <laughs> and being told what to do, which all politicians do, right? But he had cultivated enough of enough political credibility and, and you know, was a very effective communicator of his message. And Feingold, of course, was an ideological entrepreneur who didn't want to be told what to do by establishment Democrats and knew that organized labor would have his back. Mm -hmm. Right, especially public sector organized labor, these guys got together to essentially gut the parties because they they were more interested in being autonomous than they were being team players. Mm -hmm. Can understand it. I don't think that comes from a bad place. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not I'm not criticizing it normatively in terms of their individual perspective, but it's no way to run a system. Mm -hmm. um, well, sorry, wouldn't it have been up to the system to prevent it from happening? Yeah, no, <laughs> and, and I mean, look to his credit, and I, I have been critical of him in other in other venues for sure. But you know, George W. Bush tried to kill it um uh, i think he was veto overridden on it or no he folded actually he, i think he folded in the end and said he would sign it thinking it was it was unconstitutional mitch mcconnell fought it like crazy but um you know in 2002 you still had a mainstream media that could really sort of wag the dog mm -hmm. and um that's effectively what they did i mean it, it was things that were unrelated got folded in like lobbying scandals and stuff like that just all got associated with the stink of 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 soft money and campaign finance and um yeah it was not great mm -hmm. not great so now we're stuck with this sort of centrifugal force that pushes people away into mm -hmm. doing their own autonomous thing mm -hmm. how correlated do you think that this institutional um composition of the relationship of money and the parties and candidates was a a leading indicator or a lagging indicator perhaps is a better term for where the culture of American politics was going anyway. Was it drifting in a more individualistic celebrity politician direction um, and finance molded itself accordingly? I don't I don't know. I mean you could say that, but then you know, we'd already had a a, a movie star be president twice, right? Right. Um I you could write the whole thing off to boomer narcissism, I guess, if you wanted to. <laughs> As you could do with so many with so things. many things. Um, but no, I I don't think so. I think it was. I really do think it was a combination of naivete and um, policy entrepreneurship, and frankly, kind of the last gasp of the old, you know, wasp good government self righteousness, like willful naivete. Yeah. Um, 
you know, made manifest. Uh, it, I, I, I do think it has had that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think because in order to raise money, you have to essentially be a free agent now, whether you mm-hmm. want to be or not. Mm-hmm. You cannot be a, you know, in the trenches lapidary legislator anymore mm-hmm. and count on the party to help you out by being a good soldier, mm-hmm. um, for good or for ill. Yeah. Um, and and look, there were interests for sure, certain kinds of interests that benefited from the pre-McCain-Feingold establishment system, mm-hmm. right? Let's be clear. Uh, the debt continued to grow at a stable but growing rate. Um, you know, tr- free trade sort of increased, uh, immigration increased. Um, wars be- continued. And wars no, continued. no, actually, no, no. Um, you know, the there was not as much foreign policy adventurism pre-McCain-Feingold. Mm-hmm. You know, now there's a there's a confluence there where you have 9/11 and then it passes immediately afterwards, mm-hmm. and it's being debated before 9/11 happens, mm-hmm. right? Um, but no, it was it was not. Um, I would say foreign adventurism was a little bit less. Obviously, you had Kosovo, um, you had the first Iraq War, and you had you know things like Grenada. But compared to what has followed 2002, I would say modest by comparison. Yeah, um, walk us through kind of a taxonomy of what most start with Republican members of Congress are like when it comes to how they they pay for their elections. Because you have celebrity members that can really just raise everything they need from small dollars. You have leadership who do one-way committee chairs. Who do, I mean, walk us through the, how much does it cost to run for re-election? And then where did they get their money from? Sure. So it, it depends. Um, you know, if you're running from a relatively safe district, you have to watch your, your six, so to speak, for a primary challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but some guys don't raise any money. And I, when I say guys, I mean, that's not just men. Mm-hmm. Although generally I find that women politicians are harder working than male politicians, just for the record. Um, the, you know, I think the, if, if you can't, once, once you're in office, it gets a lot easier mm-hmm. because you're an incumbent and there is a community of interest that wants to make sure they have access to your door. Mm-hmm. There's a notion that that people buy votes. Nobody buys a vote mm-hmm. um, because ultimately members are not going to go sideways with their, their voters mm-hmm. because they're not going to stay members very long mm-hmm. if they do that. The one thing we have now with the internet and the sort of collapse of highly structured and, and constrained media is with the absence of gatekeepers, it's much easier to hold people accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so people are not, you know, buying votes, but you can make sure that the office is open with a donation. And that's yeah. that's really what you're paying for is to and get that, an and that the, the particular breed of, of puppies and rainbows that you're saying that supporting a given policy uh, would cause is is put in front of a member. Yeah. So one of the biggest problems in our system right now is that individual members are starved for support. Mm-hmm. You know, Congress is deeply reticent to cut the pay of people in the executive branch, both because it's complicated and because they're worried that it'll bounce back when people don't get their Social Security checks in a timely fashion, mm-hmm. right? So they cut their own pay all the time. Mm-hmm. They constantly are understaffing themselves. And as a result, individual legislators, especially in the House, are starved for information. Mm-hmm. So part of the way the lobbying system works is that a lobbyist I, you know, I'm a lobbyist for Widget X, right? I, you know, and and I, we know where they're gonna. You're gonna. You sit on a committee that's gonna acquire widgets. I want to make sure I've got the opportunity to come into you and make a compelling case for why you should choose X instead of Y. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will go through all of it, and I will provide you with a lot of information that you wouldn't otherwise have because you've got a very small team, mm-hmm. and you just can't specialize. Information that leads you in a particular right con- context, but you direction. know that, and you know that that's where it's coming from, and you apply a sort of epistemic discount 
correspondent to it. Um, but it's always framed or almost always framed in sort of soft populist terms. It's like this would be good for your voters for these reasons. And it's a it's a just so set of information that would make that cor- feasible. Correct. And, and I'm going to know also that if I come in and give you a sort of you know, a, a, a bucket of hot nonsense, then my rival is going to come in. And if he or she does a better job and presents with more integrity, you might dismiss the whole thing out of hand. So the system has incentives. They're not perfect. I'm not going to sit here and tell you a just so story about this, but, um, but they do, they do. The sophists the and calculators come up with a lot that, of nonsense. That's right. <laughs> um, but no, you need to have like, like we should have much bigger staffs. Mm-hmm. In, in Congress, that would be that would be extremely Don't helpful. Make my job harder. <laughs> <laughs> Got to recruit more of them. Get get them in place. But you know, no no legislator wants to come back and say, "Hey, I gave myself a pay raise, and by the way, I tripled the size of my staff." Yeah. What I tell people is like, your voters think you're a millionaire anyway. Half of you are. You might as well give. You know. <laughs> might as well pay yourself. Sure, like might it. as well make sure your junior staff aren't like subsisting purely on beer and nachos. Right. And and I mean, look beyond that, it's very hard to maintain a household in two places if you're making one hundred sixty thousand yeah. dollars a year. If one of those places is Washington D.C., mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's a reason these guys sleep in their office. Mm-hmm. It's I mean, it's it's really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was telling you the the other day or earlier. Um, you know, I used to live over on Capitol Hill in a really rundown little apartment, and uh, you know, I had a senator who was one of my building companions uh, it was me and a senator and a drug dealer basically lived in the, <laughs> the lived the in the building genders. that's right yeah. which way western man um but no we yeah we would all hang out and do laundry at the same time um anyway the you know it's it's rough it's a it's a demanding sort of set of circumstances um i forgot what got us off on that tear what was it we were well in terms of the fact that you know the the offices are under resourced and so a lobbyist or a special interest can present a story that is facially in the interests of that member and their voters right but because they don't have the resources to do due diligence across 10 different stories and a 5k check unlocks the door that's how you get right the interest so so in in my perfect world recognizing that the sort of little P populist incentives to keep cutting their pay and cutting their staff aren't going anywhere. I would love a campaign finance system that let that that allowed for lots of money to flood into the parties to basically po- provide professional partisans that did support work. Sort of a shadow staff for yeah. every single campaign. Yeah. That weighs the interests for their members. Correct. Yeah. Um, th- that's the other thing too, is there's a really high wall between official activities and political activities, mm-hmm. which is just... I get it. You don't want people using their tax dollars for campaigning, but I mean, presumably Which is totally different than the franking system. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like I just saw there's a congresswoman who just put two 30 second TV ads that look like campaign ads up in the Miami district this week. And yeah. I'm like, I've never seen franking used to do basically personal campaign ads. But yeah. Bravo. I mean, it's it's t- Can you it takes some is? How does that work? So uh, under the. Congress is allowed to commu- – the taxpayer subsidizes communications from individual members to their constituents to let them know what they're up to. It's a form of self-promotion. I don't have any problem with it. In theory, it allows unmediated contact between individual members and their and their constituents. If, if and this you, is functionally like if a constituent sent you a letter, you would you would not want it to be against interest for the congressman to send a letter back. back. Correct. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and, and historically that was what ate up a lot of it was mail. 
right? Um, you know, congressional offices will collect information on who's who's concerned with national parks, and if something national parks related comes out, they'll make sure that those constituents get a letter letting them know. Um, others will do some more self promotional things. That there are rules that keep franking excluded from being proximate to elections and whatnot. I would actually essentially tear down the wall between your political and policy operations. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be fine if we did triple the size of the staff. I think it would be fine to have you know your campaign run out of mm -hmm. your congressional office. I don't have any problem with that. That's essentially how they do it in the UK. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a problem. Um, but I would also prefer to see congressional offices also function as like district welfare offices. Mm -hmm. Right, I think if if in in my like Luke Thompson utopia, we we essentially make it illegal for the executive branch to communicate directly with, uh, with citizens, yeah. and instead have citizens have their interactions with the executive mm -hmm. branch mediated by their legislators. Yeah, but this is I'm I'm a congressional supremacist, so of course I think wacky things like this. Yeah, co-equal. No, no, God, don't even get me started. Trigger on that. words. It's like you're gonna yeah, throw a beer bottle at my head yeah, if you hear that word. Be curled up here by um, the wall. It's it's not the right time for this conversation on here, but if you listen to constitutionally speaking, you will hear Luke um, uh, lose his mind over the term co-equal yeah. branch of government. Um, yeah, several times. Um, so we've laid out pretty good theoretical foundations for why the campaign finance system sucks, how it could be reformed. Um, but you are a practitioner. You're not sure. merely a theorist, and you've just gotten done um, practicing in one of the most interesting Senate races that has ever occurred in American <laughs> history. Uh, what exactly have you been up to over the last six months? Uh, um, well, I, you know, I, I if you've ever had a nightmare of being naked at school, mm -hmm. um, that's sort of been like what the last month has been. Um, I I ran the super PAC supporting J.D. Vance's Senate campaign in Ohio, mm -hmm. and um, because of some aspects of campaign finance law, had been putting a lot of information up on a blog mm -hmm. for a narrow group of our supporters uh, to see, hoping that the campaign would, would see it as well mm -hmm. um, as a means of taking on myself as a super PAC, some of the roles traditionally played by mm -hmm. campaigns. So I did a lot of polling, mm -hmm. I did opposition research, et cetera. Um, evidently, one of our opponents found the blog. We always knew that was a risk. Um, we sort of operated on the assumption that it would eventually get found. Um, and then, you know, uh, leaked it to a reporter right before election day. Mm -hmm. um, the reporter called me and said, hey, uh, I see there's this blog, I'm reading it, and uh, you know, I almost threw up when I heard it, but sort of <laughs> said, look, yes, it's an interesting story in and of itself, but it's part of a broader thing. If I tell you the whole sort of thing and, and let you understand some other stuff that's not public, even with the blog, will you hold off until after the polls closed? And he said yes for the better story, and you can read that in Politico if you want. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the Vance Super PAC was... Um, yeah, we were really innovative. Um, I'll, I'll just say it, and uh, credit to my team uh, for a lot of that. Um, you know, I, I I'll take a little credit, but I think credit to them. Um, credit also to JD uh, for being willing to to trust me on it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've known each other for a long time, but it's not like I was in his wedding party. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like this was a it was a a professional trust that I I really appreciate. Um, we were running in a very expensive state. Uh, against some very wealthy people. When you say very expensive state, what does that mean? Uh, well, the primary mode of communication in, in campaigns is still television. Mm -hmm. um, television is not the most uh, efficient means of communicating a message, but it is the most efficient means of communicating broadly, quickly. Specifically to Republican primary voters. Yes, um, although in general elections as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
also the line between what's television and what's digital is fraying they're sort of blood bleeding into one another why is that well so for the the most so the simple technology is the short answer but for instance you know an increasing number of people view uh what's called ott or over-the-top television this is essentially web tv mm-hmm. right um it looks like a television but it doesn't necessarily have a cable box you're, mm-hmm. you're using a roku or something like that mm-hmm. um streaming services have have become a major part of video at home video consumption Mm. they don't have ads or at least not all of them have ads hulu does netflix doesn't etc right um people still watch use traditional television to watch sports um and and major event viewing uh and of course broadcast networks still have the largest number of viewers but they're they're a Mm. fraction of what they used to be and then cable of course has proliferated with a huge number of channels and yet even as they're the media landscape fragments and their audiences get sh- smaller and smaller, they are relative to everything else actually bigger and bigger, right? So, you know, as a result, you can look at something like, say, Tucker Carlson show, right? Is the largest show in cable news. Sometimes the five beats him, but it's, you know, the five or Tucker are, are usually comedian. And he gets about three million viewers a night, a little bit less, less, right? But he's overwhelmingly the largest, most influential news show on cable with less than 1% of the population, right? It's this, this is the, the artifact of, of um, proliferation. But what, what is still true is that much of cable and TV is governed by um, uh, media markets, DMAs, um, those lines. And so in Ohio, you have three big, well, three and a half big ones. You've got you know Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati. Dayton's pretty big too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have a bunch of secondary markets, uh, Youngstown, Toledo, and then what we call spill markets, which is to say markets that cross borders where I'm buying TV and people in West Virginia are seeing my ads. Mm-hmm. Right? I have actually a, an elected official in West Virginia texted me and was like, you're doing the Vance Super PAC, right? And I was like, yes. And he's, he lives in Charleston, West Virginia. Yeah. He's like, yeah, a lot of ads. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they're inefficient, right? Um as opposed to say texting every single Republican primary voters matched cell phone with the video, you know, you may or may not click on the ad, you may or may not watch it. The cell phone may or may not be matched to you, right? So these are these are trade-offs between individually mm-hmm. addressable things. I, I can't send a piece of mail that will deliver video mm-hmm. in 30 seconds, um, right? Mm-hmm. And so what makes Ohio expensive? Oh, Ohio is expensive because it has a lot of people and a lot of media markets. Okay. Um, and so you're, you're trading off you know, a state like Arizona is expensive, but it's pretty straightforward, mm-hmm. right? You have Phoenix, Tucson are the primary media markets, and Phoenix is like up here, and Tucson's mm-hmm. down here, and everything else is is secondary. Mm-hmm. You know, I think like sixty percent of the primary and general electorates are both in Phoenix, um, whereas you know, in Ohio, Cleveland is the largest, and it's about thirty percent, mm-hmm. right? So you can you can see there's your and there's inefficiencies that come from having to run across multiple media markets. Okay. Correct. Well, and then there's inefficiencies and there's also just ambiguities, mm-hmm. right? You have to make judgment calls. Yeah. Um, and so geography becomes a lot more important in a state like Ohio as opposed to you know Phoenix is a good example. Yeah. Which media market do you prioritize? And right. So on and so forth. Okay. So you had a very expensive uh, media market and you had a lot of those eight figure net worth boomers running in. Correct. The, uh, yeah. Primarily. Initially five and then it, you know uh, one drop. Well, I actually Bernie Moreno. Great guy. Um, I actually like Bernie a lot. Uh, he he yeah, he's ran. Awesome. Yeah, he ran. Gave it a shot. Wasn't working. Dropped out. Um, wound up endorsing JD. So, we, but we had five opponents, all of whom are much wealthier than JD, and JD's no slouch. Um, 
and you know they were all prepared to fund their campaigns to the tune of several million dollars. Um, Josh Mandel is not as personally wealthy. He used to be very wealthy before he was divorced uh, from his wife, who has a lot of family money. And then he also had been running for office for a long time and brought about $5 million into mm -hmm. the campaign. So effectively cutting himself a $5 million check yeah. on day one. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had to figure out how to work around that because you know, JD was not going to raise that kind of money um, during the primary, especially in a contested primary where people are not inclined to give because it's a risk, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want to, they don't want to waste their money by giving it to somebody who doesn't win. Uh, so the super PAC was well-financed. We had to do a lot of the things that the campaign, you know, the campaign, we wanted to maximize their resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what were some of the innovations that you guys came up with, uh, in terms, and you know, the lay of the land, all of this is public. I, I read most of it in the news. Um, you know, the, uh, there was an individual by the name of Peter Thiel who gave a $10 million mm -hmm. gift initially to the super PAC. And then I believe a three and a half million dollar gift soon after and a smattering of, of other donors that that's, that's all public domain stuff. What, um, but, but it doesn't, my understanding is it's not one-to-one -one. a dollar on, on super PAC side isn't the same as a dollar on the campaign side. What does that mean? Correct. Right. So, so you might say, well, why are you trying to maximize the campaign's resources, mm -hmm. right? Why not just, you know, say, don't bother raising money, just raise enough to pay for a driver and, mm -hmm. and all that. Um, by federal law, candidates get a preferred rate. Mm-hmm on mail and broadcast is really where it, where it shows up. Mm -hmm. So at the end of that election, um, a campaign was paying about half of what an outside group, a super PAC was paying mm -hmm. because we're subject to market forces. Obviously a highly contested primary, there's inventory starts to get gobbled up, which means that the stations can charge more and more and more, mm -hmm. right? They can't charge the candidates any more than the lowest available rate, mm -hmm. right? So candidates, their dollars just go a lot further the closer you get to election day. Um, our goal was to make sure that JD had enough money uh, by the time early voting started that he could deliver one message really clearly. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what he did. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we wanted to put him in a position once early voting started to be competitive for first place so that he could sort of seal the deal himself. Mm -hmm. Um, and quite evidently he did. Um, sealing deal meant in part being a credible contender for the Trump endorsement, which we got. Um, and, you know, JD being a contender for first was, I think, a really big part of that. Mm -hmm. um, also, he's uniquely talented as a candidate. But when you're sitting there and you've got a $10 million check or a $10 million in the bank account, but you're looking at every other candidate cutting, let's see, uh, committing or cutting $12 million, $10 million, bringing in five, committing five, committing seven, I think that was what it was, or, mm -hmm. or, or five. Like we just, that 10 puts us maybe at parity with the next person up. Mm -hmm. So we we certainly had, of everybody who went the distance, we certainly had the least purchasing power mm -hmm. as an organization. And so we had to do two things simultaneously. One, put stuff in the super PAC that normally would be in a campaign. Some of this was really quotidian. Every time JD did a town hall, and he did like 60 town halls from January 1st through election day, you know, instead of having the campaign, which would usually do a robocall to people with his voice, encouraging people to show up, we, we did a robocall um, with somebody, just somebody else, right? And uh, including, you know, we did one round with John, Don Jr., which was great. He, he did robocalls for us, encouraging people to show up to events. Um, but, you know, we would do a robocall and send text messages encouraging people to show up. Mm -hmm. 
typically that's a campaign function. Mm -hmm. Super PACs being capital allocators don't generally do labor intensive things like that. We built an enormous data um, and targeting engine and then made that the, the universes that we built out of that targeting available in digital repositories for the campaign to buy their digital ads against. Mm -hmm. um, we spent a lot of money on small dollar fundraising and used uh, WinRed as a conduit to uh, have people give money to the campaign based on ads that they initially encountered from us. Mm -hmm. um, what else? Uh, you know, there, and then of course, obviously, there's the blog. Um, so we were sort of wrapping around. Unlike you know, a typical super PAC is going to spend eighty percent of its budget or more on ads. Um, you know, of that original ten million, I think we only wound up spending about six million. Wow, on ads. The other four went to broad-based campaign support. Mm -hmm. Do you think people are going to copy this model? I don't know. I mean, I if they're in the same situation, they might. But it's it's a weird set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. You know, I it, I I didn't you know I didn't come up with this model and then go looking for an opportunity to yeah. use it. Right. This was a well. Let's look bluntly at our reality. We've got a you know we've got an extremely talented communicator with a unique vision uh, that he can articulate that we know people are going to like. Um, you know, we know they're going to like it because you know he sold several million copies of a book about his life and his vision. Right. And they made a movie about it. Um, we, you know, so so maybe, but I just don't know how often it's going to be that you're going to have a, a mega donor who's willing mm -hmm. to be supportive early. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, credit to Peter Thiel. He took a big risk and didn't look back. Yeah. Um, and there are not a lot of people with the guts to do that, frankly. Mm -hmm. Will this end up being the most expensive Senate primary in American history? I, I don't know because I Pennsylvania may have already passed it. Oh, interesting. Um, it's possible. There was a lot of money spent in Pennsylvania. Um, but I probably not. I don't know. It could be. Um, I think it's the most complex mm -hmm. so far. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything you would have done differently? Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, plenty. Um, I probably would have held off on some of the data targeting. Um, I, I, you know, the, the trick with micro-targeting is that it's very difficult to target a ballot mm -hmm. for an open primary because people haven't made their minds up until it's too late to make those universes useful. I see. Right. Um, so by the time you're getting meaningful data on who a Vance voter is versus a Mandel voter, mm -hmm. it, you know, you're three weeks from election day, two weeks from election day, mm -hmm. right? A lot of the cake is baked at that point. Mm -hmm. So you have to find ways of you have to find proxies for that. And mm -hmm. issues, people don't generally change their views on issues quickly. And so you can use issues for it. Um, as a result, I was pretty, I was early with some of the modeling. I probably would have held the third round, uh, the third round until a bit later. Um, I would not have put the JD vulnerability study in the blog um, because, and this was an oversight, but like, uh, you know, it has like every vulnerability study and every opposition research study, it has people's home addresses on it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the issue is you can't delete that stuff because then you're hiding it from the public and it's not a blog. Then you're using it as a covert means of communicating with the mm -hmm. campaign instead of putting it in the public, come what may. Um, so there are some things that I would have fixed like that. And um yeah, I mean, there were we we re we responded to initial spending against us to kind of try to steady people, but in retrospect, I should have just held on to that. The, yeah, the spending in the autumn. What did you learn about Republican primary voters that is new 
either something people in general didn't know or something that's different this cycle um you know i i would say i learned a couple of things um there's a truism that like voters don't care about policy and that's just dead wrong. Mm -hmm. They really do. They care about policy. Well, it's usually people who think voters are quite stupid. Yeah. And they're not, um, you know, they, do they have all of the like terms of art and, and clear, you know, tax. Do they know what industrial policy is? Right. Yeah. No, (laughs) no, but they know what they want things made in the United States. Sure. Exactly. They want jobs here. Um, and, and it's the other thing that, that we guessed and wound up being true is like you can also have a discussion with the electorate, right? Persuasion is possible mm-hmm. in terms of, of policy. Um, an early poll that the Super PAC did found, and, and I wasn't surprised by the by the breakdown, but by the overall number and intensity, the overwhelming majority of Republican primary voters supported punishing outsourcing companies, which is it, using the tax code, which is to say that like the shibboleth of of sort of tax minimalism is not really true. Does that mean then that J.D. Vance is the first major Senate candidate in the last 50 years to support raising taxes? He did. Yeah. Side? Yeah. I mean, basically, yes, he yeah. ran. He ran on. And we, we were conscious of this at, mm-hmm. at the time was we had a guy who was running on raising taxes. On as, woke corporations. On woke corporations. And universities. And universities. Yes. Um, and that was a huge risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it worked, we would be seen as visionaries and if it failed they would call us the stupidest people on earth mm-hmm. um but we saw in the data that 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 was a winner um you know another thing that's always important is to remember that politics takes place in an institutional context mm-hmm. so when you polled at the beginning of 2021 um you know election integrity had massive intensity it was mm-hmm. a it was a first order issue it is still a first order issue in the sense that republican primary voters want um to have voter ID, they want to have confidence in their elections. There is a sense, rightly, that the system is not transparent, not accountable, and that something needs to be done to clean it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's valid. In March or April of 2021, a lot of that anxiety and and, and frustration was focused very specifically on the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. The issue has broadened, mm-hmm. but also, you know, we were sitting there in April of 2021, and I, and I said, look, immigration is a really low-performing issue today. Right. Inflation is a really low performing issue today. These are not first order concerns, Mm -hmm. but you have a weak Democratic administration and very narrow Democratic majorities in the House and Senate, the narrowest possible in the Senate. Which means that what President Brandon's going to end up screwing the border and (laughs) blowing up the currency by the time next year. What are the only two things that can unify the Democratic Party right now? Opening the border by executive fiat and just dumping money into the economy like sailors on shore leave. Which means what? That immigration and inflation, along with the sort of hypostatic frustration about outsourcing, are going to be issues of first order concern. Mm-hmm. So if you look at what JD runs on in when he announces in July 1st of 2021, you know, in education, we thought we, we you know, this was him, he, he sort of felt that education and critical race theory were going to become major, much more salient issues. And so on July 1st, 2021, months before the Yonkin victory, he runs on you know, this sort of overarching theory of the way in which economics, um, a, we essentially have a corrupt elite that is shaping our economy to serve their own interests and using culture war to divide and keep down the mass of people who are getting screwed by this system. And uh, that's the message he delivered. And he focused on, again, education, outsourcing, mm-hmm. inflation. And border security. 
And did the were any of those popping as the number one issue Republican primary voters were volunteering? Mm-hmm. In open-ended questions, no. But it was a coherent story. It was a clear message. He's the right messenger to give it. And um, by the time we hit, you know, early voting in April, those were all first-order concerns. Very interesting. Luke, how do people keep up with everything that you're doing? You're mostly a behind-the-scenes guy, though occasionally you do <laughs> opine. I, 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 I can't keep up with them, so I hope <laughs> other people don't try. Uh, follow me on Twitter, I guess. Um, that's probably the best, where you can get some of my, um, you know, some of my... my, my uh, bilious idiocy. Um, at, at LT Tomso? Yes. No N at the end. Two T's, no N. Um, very stupid Twitter handle. But that's <laughs> it me. It sticks. Yeah. Uh, you look for the picture of you wearing a yellow hat and a golden doodle. Not a golden doodle. Standard poodle. Oh. No, no. <laughs> look, there's nothing wrong with the doodles or the whatevers, um, but they're just watered down perfection. So oh. why not? You know, the original water dog, the original gun dog is the standard poodle. You're a true Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Luke, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hopefully you guys found that interesting. Uh, I certainly enjoyed taping with Luke. Um, you know, he recently had a baby uh, a few months ago, and so you can see the the dad vibes are slowly starting to, to really set in, almost like, you know, a fly in amber. You know, his beard is starting to grow into his hair and everything. He's real... Oh, man's man. Uh, we, we love Luke. He's a fascinating guy. Uh, truly terrifying if you ever are on the wrong side of an issue or a race from him. But um, uh, thankfully, um, you know, that's not relevant because we're a 501c3. Uh, I'm sure some creepy journalists uh, are listening to this because they are uh, obsessed with uh, what went down in Ohio. So hi, creepy journalists. Um, uh, please get off my back. Um, uh, but uh, all joking aside, uh, please make sure to rate and review this podcast. Uh, five stars only, please. It's extremely helpful for us in the ratings and uh, go to americanmoment.org to find everything we have cooking we're constantly blessed to be putting out new programs and initiatives and so uh, be sure to, to to not miss any of it um, thank you guys as always for listening and we'll see you guys next week moment of truth is an american moment studios production filmed at the conservative partnership center Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.